Now, there was a phrase that used to be used quite often. I don't hear it a lot these days. When people who were telling a story, they wanted to make you believe that what they were telling was absolutely the truth, and they would say it's the what? Gospel truth, right? Don't hear a lot of that uh, these days, but it's gospel truth. Well, what is gospel truth? As we begin looking at the letter from Paul to the believers in Colossae, to the Colossian believers, we find him in his greetings commending them for allowing the gospel to do its work in their hearts. The Greek word that we find in verse 5 for gospel, and you've heard this no doubt before, is euangelion, from which we get our word evangel, which means good news, or to evangelize, which is spreading or sharing or telling the good news. In fact, uh, in ancient non-biblical writings, uh, that word was used by messengers who, in a time of war, when their town or when their province had gone to war against somebody else, if they got the victory, the messenger would come back with the good news. Same word that's being used. It's announcing the good news of victory. And in essence, that's exactly what the good news of Jesus Christ is all about, is it not? He has won the battle over sin, over death, over Satan himself, and the victory is ours. An amazing victory, and that's good news for everybody. Now, that is the good news. 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But, thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the gospel truth. And that's what Paul is rejoicing about as he begins this letter to the Colossians. He says in verse 3, and I'm going to read part of it again, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why? Because, he goes on to say in verse 4, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. That's a good greeting. Nice job, Paul. There is so much contained in those few verses. And the reason for this thanksgiving is that the Colossians had heard the gospel, and then the gospel began to bear fruit in their lives. Now, notice how Paul starts this thanksgiving and commendation of what's taking place in their lives. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Notice he's not praising them for a good job. He is not patting them on the back. Paul is thanking God whenever he prays for them. And by thanking God, he's raising his commendations above the level of flattery. He was not using flattery for the believers in Corinth. 
He's given the glory to the one to whom it was due. Thank you, God, for what you've done in the lives of the Colossians. Thank you for the effect that the gospel has had in their lives. That's where his thanksgiving was coming from. And that's exactly what I want us to be looking at this morning. The effects of the gospel in the life of a believer. Paul actually presents seven aspects. Yeah, seven points today. Seven aspects of the gospel as he thanks God for them. Kind of giving a broad picture of the essence of the gospel, what that does. First of all, the gospel of truth is received by faith. So yeah, I know that, Pastor. Well, let's take a look at it anyway. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now this was truly something that Paul was rejoicing about because just as we see today, not everyone believes in Christ. In Galatians 1.7, he writes that some pervert the gospel of Christ. And we see that happening today where, where churches are twisting the truth of Scripture to, to fit the cultural norms of the day. That's perverting the gospel. In Romans chapter 10, verse 16, he writes, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. They haven't listened. They haven't believed. Listen to what he writes in Second Thessalonians chapter 8. He will punish. And this, this, is, this is the reason why he's rejoicing so much for the Colossians, because he knows the consequences of what not believing ends up with. He will punish, Second Thessalonians 1.8, those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with every everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people. Believing is a choice. We talked briefly about that in our spiritual growth class this morning. Believing is a choice. Refusing to believe is a choice. Those are the only two choices that matter in eternity. Jesus himself said in Mark 1.15, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. He says in John 10.10, I have come that they might have life. I am providing life, Jesus is saying. They don't have to remain dead in their sin, but they need to make a choice. Paul is saying here to the Colossians, I am so glad, I rejoice, I give thanks to God that you made the right choice, that you choose life, chose life, that you chose to believe in Jesus. He is thrilled for that. Now we know that people believe in all sorts of things today, right? Hear it all the time. The mantra today is, whatever you believe is right because it's what? Your truth. That's good. Good on you, right? I never understood that, uh, that expression. But uh, good for you. Be proud of it. You know, Frank Sinatra wrote a song called uh, I Believe. How many of you remember that? It's a great song. R- sang it really well. Became very popular. But have you ever thought about some of the words or uh, lyrics in it? I believe for every drop of rain a flower grows. Really? Why would you believe that? That can't even be true. For every drop of rain, the flower grows. He believes it. 
Then he sings, I believe that somewhere in the dark a candle glows. It's kind of a stupid line. Who cares? <laughs> it might be true. How does that change your life if you believe that? And he ends the psalm by proclaiming, I believe. But what difference do those beliefs make? Paul's giving thanks because we have heard of your faith, talking to the Colossians, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. That's the only thing that matters in eternity. Do you know what the message of faith is? Paul actually gives it very clearly in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 8. The message concerning faith that we proclaim is this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Faith in Christ Jesus. The relationship between faith and Christ Jesus is the relationship that saves. None other. And that's what the Colossians had, and that's why Paul was thanking God. You know, it's interesting that in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, it says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It uses a preposition, the Greek preposition epi, which suggests uh, resting on a foundation. And we know, you know, Christ is our solid foundation, the rock upon which I stand, the rock upon which I build my home, a firm foundation. Then in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, it says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the, the Greek preposition there is ice, which means to find a dwelling place in, to go into, to, to abide in, to find a home in. And here in Colossians, it says, have faith in Christ, but it uses a different Greek preposition. It's actually pronounced en, as in our letter, which means that one has come to a place of security, a place of assurance, being anchored or immovable. And so our faith in Christ is like resting on a foundation, finding a home, putting out an anchor that holds us fast. And what's amazing about that is that salvation comes to us in our human experience simply by believing. So simple. But that's the beauty of it. That's the simplicity of it, which so many people have such a hard time here. Nothing is easy, right? If it's too easy, it must not be right. I've got to do something to earn it. What do I have to do? John 1.12 says, Yet to all who did, what? Receive him. That's it. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Folks, that's the beginning of the gospel. The Spurgeon used to tell a story about two men. They were on a boat going down a river, and they saw some signs up saying uh, rough rapids and falls coming up. And they were, they were going down, and the water got rougher and rougher. They hit some of those rough rapids, uh, rapids, rapids uh, capsized a boat. The two men were out there swimming and yelling. And th- there, there was a group of people over on the shore, and they, they saw them struggling, and they th- threw out a, a, a rope to them. One man grabbed a hold of that rope. The other man, in his panic, there was a log that came by, and he grabbed a hold of the log. The man with the rope was pulled to safety. The man with a log went on over the falls, was never seen again. His illustration points out what faith does. Faith gives us a connection with the shore. 
Faith gives us a connection to Jesus Christ who pulls us to safety, who rescues us, who holds us fast. Good works, on the other hand, is like grabbing that log, right? Feels, feels secure right now, feels good to me right now, but all it's doing is taking you with it. Making you feel good and secure in the moment, but ultimately continuing to the, uh, with the flow to eternal death. And Paul says, first of all, folks, in Colossae, I want to thank God that you, you got the rope, you grabbed the rope, not the log. So gospel truth is received by faith. Secondly, the gospel truth results in love. We find in verse 4, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. He's saying the result of your faith has been the love you have for all the saints, for all God's people. Over in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he says the only thing that counts, listen, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Where there is true faith, there's going to be love for one another within the body of believers. Within the body of Christ, if you truly believe in Christ, if you are truly His child, you're going to love your brother and sister in Christ. That should be the consequence of our faith. It's inevitable that where there is healthy faith, there will be a true love for our brother and sister in Christ. Faith does not lead to isolation One commentator put it this way, it is faith in Christ in a sense that purges us of selfishness and gives a new perspective toward others. And our love is a reflection of His love for us. Did you catch the other thing that Paul says here? We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for what? For all God's people. Their love was non-selective Love. You know, I look at this. Why did he have to go and put it that way? Seriously, do we have to love everybody? But you see, that should be the effect of our faith in Christ. In Philippians chapter two, verse two, we read, "May my joy, uh, make my joy complete." Paul says, "By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and." Of one mind. He's saying that we ought to love everyone, everybody the same. If we are having a difficult time loving someone in the body, we need to ask God to what? Change them so it's easier for me to love them. Change me. Change my heart. I need your love. I need extra love here to love them. In John 13, 34, Jesus says, I, A new command I give you. This is brand new. A new command I give you. What? Love one another. That's a command. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. We don't have a choice. Not only is there a command to love one another, but God gives us the capacity to accomplish that command. He always does that. Romans 5.5, Paul says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. His love has been poured out into our hearts. We have no excuse. 
So there was a new commandment, and there was a new capacity to fulfill that commandment. You see, God never gives us a command and says, good luck. He always provides a mean by which we can fulfill it. In 1 Peter 1.22, he says, love one another deeply from the heart. The capacity to love like that is there because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. But you may say, you know, I, I just can't love that person. You know, their, their personality is just really difficult. They just don't think the way I do. You know, when we say we can't love someone, especially someone within the body, we're basically saying that we don't believe that God's love is great enough for me to love that person. The issue then really becomes a me thing, not a them thing. And we need to be praying, please God, change my heart. Change my heart. So there are two crucial sides of the Christian life. One is faith, the other is love. One, one is sound doctrine, and the other is experiential love. How we experience it, how we, we practice it. We're saved by faith, we're saved to love. Isn't that good? So we have the new commandment to love and the new capacity as the Spirit of God has poured out His love in, into us. The third thing we see here, that not only is the gospel truth received by faith and results in love, but it also rests in hope. It rests in hope. Isn't that interesting? Faith, love, and hope. Heard those words together somewhere before. 1 Corinthians 13 at the end. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of them is love. And Paul reiterates that same concept here as he, com- as he rec- uh, commends the Colossians. Look at verse 5. The faith and love that spring from what? The hope stored up for you in heaven. Faith, hope, and love. He's saying, I just thank God not only for your faith, but I thank God for the love that results from your faith, and I thank God for the hope that is in you, and the hope that you have. What hope is he talking about? It's the hope stored up for you in heaven. Not only I hope so, it's an assurance that we have, a guarantee that we have. The verb means uh, reserved, stored up for you, reserved. Someone once called, called it the divine layaway plan. First Peter 1.4, Peter calls it an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you. It's there. It's waiting for you. We have that assurance. That is our hope. The writer of Hebrews writes about this as well in Hebrews 6.19. Listen, we have this hope as an anchor. We just talked about that. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Where is that anchor secured? He says, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. What's behind the curtain in the inner sanctuary in the the temple? It's God's throne. It's God's throne. It's the Holy of Holies. It's the throne of God. We are anchored to God's throne. Isn't that amazing? Paul asks asks and answers an important question in Romans chapter 8. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And he goes on to answer, he says, no. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced, 
that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because we are anchored to Christ who sits on the throne. What a hope. What an assurance. But this hope does something else as well. Look at verse 4 and 5 again. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and, and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith in Christ, and love you have for all God's people that spring from the hope stored up in you in heaven. Isn't that interesting? There can be no faith or love if there is no hope. And even that hope comes from God. Because God establishes our hope by making us sons and daughters, making us his children. In 1 John 3, 1, uh, we read, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. He established our hope by making us his children. And what's even more exciting is that he will fulfill our hope by making us like his son. He goes, goes on to say in verse 2, there in 1 John 3, the next verse, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. So God establishes our hope by making us His children, and, he, and He's going to fulfill our hope by making us like his son. It's pretty cool, huh? What a hope. What a fantastic hope. The gospel gives us love for one another, hope for eternity. Faith and hope are inseparably linked. We believe and so we hope, and we hope and so we believe. They work together. So the gospel truth is received by faith, results in love, rests in hope, and fourthly, the gospel truth reaches the world. Verse 6, the gospel that has come to you, in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. The gospel truth reaches the world. He's saying the gospel is not just one more mystery religion in the Roman Empire, not just one more local sect that you have to deal with and you have to figure out and, 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 and reject. This is the truth of Jesus Christ, the true gospel, the true good news of salvation, and is for the whole world. Romans 1.8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported where? All over the world. And in verse 16, he goes on to say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jews and then the Gentiles, everybody else. And over in Romans 10, verse 18, But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did, Paul says. Their voice has, has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Of course, in John eight twelve, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. And then we've got the Great Commission. Can't forget the Great Commission. Matthew 28 tells us to go and make disciples of what? All nations. That's our responsibility. We are to be His witnesses. It's kind of what he's saying here in Colossians in, in verse six, uh, 6. The gospel has come to you. It has to start personally. 
in each one of us. We can't be witnesses of it if it's not real in our own life. And if the gospel truth really takes hold, it should bear fruit and spread. In the same way, Paul continues to say to them, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. It started in them personally, in their own personal lives, and they then are spreading it. Revelation chapter 7, verse 19 is a picture of, of why, what, what's going to happen because of all the growth and in, in in the spreading. After this I looked, he says, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The gospel truth reaches the world. The fifth aspect of the gospel truth is that the gospel truth reproduces fruit. Again, in verse 6, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. He says he's, it's, it's bearing fruit and growing. Folks, this is really the heart of the gospel. It's a living thing. The Word of God is living. It's alive and powerful, and it should be productive. It should be reproductive. It should grow and reproduce. The gospel is planted in our heart, then it grows, and it matures, and then it spreads, and that's how the church begins to grow. That's what true church growth really is. It should grow and reproduce. The gospel is planted. That's certainly what happened in the early church, isn't it? Acts chapter 9, verse 31, it says, Then the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace, and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord, and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. So that tells me that they, they were being built up, and they were being edified, they were being taught, um, and they were, they were taking their, their relationship with the Lord very seriously. And what happened because of it? The end of that verse says, It, the church, increased in numbers. That should be the natural flow of our relationship with Christ. Growing, reproducing, and the church growing. Again, in Acts 12, 24, we read, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. It bore fruit and grew. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 8, Paul described it this way, the Lord's message rang out. It rang out from you, not only Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Easter time, we sing that great song, uh, hear the bells ringing, they're singing, Christ arose. That message, that truth, that gospel truth should be ringing out. Is the Lord's message ringing out from Sion? We cannot simply hope or depend on the message being broadcast on Facebook or on, on the web page, which it is, but it should be ringing out loud and clear from each one of us here this morning. You know, there's an amazing promise in Romans chapter 10 that Paul gives us in verse 13. Everyone, and you know this verse, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that great? Love that verse. What a promise. We feel good about that verse. But then he asks this haunting question in verse 14, the very next verse. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one 
whom they have, of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent, as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? How beautiful are our feet? How beautiful are our feet? Are we ringing out the gospel truth? So the gospel truth is not only received by faith, results in love, rests in hope, it reaches the world, it reproduces fruit, but it's also rooted in grace. Can't get away from grace. The gospel truth is rooted in grace. Look at the end of verse 6. In the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it, and truly understood God's grace. Paul cannot get away from God's grace. He can't get through a paragraph. In fact, these verses 3 to 8 in Greek is all one run-on sentence. He cannot not talk about God's grace because grace is such a heart, is the heart of the gospel. All other religions are based on the assumption that you've got to do something to earn something. All other religions are based on the fact that a person can, by their own efforts, commend themselves to God. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. I don't do what this and this and this person do. I'm not that bad. Paul is going to talk a lot more about that as we get into chapter 2, but he wants to put it out there for all to know that, uh, that none of this is possible. Everything that we were talking about this morning, nothing of, none of that is possible except by God's grace. God is freely and sovereignly merciful and forgiving due to nothing we have done, but only by His grace. Grace is, once again, simply God giving us what we do not deserve. Remember the story from Acts when Paul and some of the apostles were directed by God to go to Macedonia. And on the Sabbath, on on a particular Sabbath, they were speaking to a group of women And chapter 16 of Acts, verse 14, says, One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. Now listen, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. That's called God's grace. It's called God's grace. Salvation is always a gracious act on God's part, and it always and it's always for the world, for God so loved the world. You remember Paul's conversion experience when he was knocked off his horse by his, by, uh, horse by his great light, and Jesus spoke to him. And we we always know what Jesus said to him in the beginning when when uh, when Jesus said, "I I am the one that you are persecuting." But do you remember what Jesus' commission to Paul was in verse eighteen? I am sending you to them, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, to everybody else. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Did they deserve it? No. It was God's grace and His grace alone. Do we deserve it? No. but it's God's grace. We were made alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, Ephesians chapter 2. 
We were, we were deserving of death. We were deserving of God's wrath. We were deserving of His punishment for eternal condemnation. But, says Paul, it is by grace you've been saved. Does my neighbor deserve it? Nope. Not at all. But God loves them. And He wants to pour out His grace upon them as well. And that takes us to our last point here this morning, which is actually similar to what we've already been talking about, but perhaps becomes a little bit more personal. The gospel truth is preached by Christ's servants. Preached by Christ's servants. Listen to verse 7 and 8. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in Christ. To whom was Paul a servant? To Christ. And we meet another servant of Christ, Epaphras, here in this verse. Epaphras was not a servant of Paul to do Paul's bidding. Last week we we talked about the fact that Epaphras was from Colossae, and he came and heard. He came and heard the gospel truth from Paul, and by God's grace he believed as well in Jesus Christ. And when that happened, Epaphras became a servant a servant of Christ Jesus as a new as his new lord and master and therefore became, he became a fellow servant with Paul so why is Paul thanking Epaphras because somebody had to take the gospel truth to the colossians and Epaphras stepped up and he did it what is the responsibility of a servant to do their master's bidding, whatever it is. Jesus asked Epaphras to go and preach the gospel truth to the Colossians, and he did it. You know, I am so glad that my father shared the gospel message with me when I was a child. Without it, I'd be lost. I'd be going to hell. And I would assume each one of you knows the person or the situation from from where you receive that gospel message. May God help me to be selfless enough to say if the gospel has done so much for me, the least I can do is share it with somebody else. Father, this morning I pray that that would be our prayer that you would lay it on our heart, this amazing gospel, amazing grace, this love and mercy and and grace and and faith and and the hope we have. Oh, Father, we rejoice, but don't let us get stuck in rejoicing. You have told us, take the next step. Step out, open your mouth, share with somebody else what Jesus has done for them, not just what Jesus has done for you. They need to hear. You want them to hear. Your grace is sufficient for them as well. So, Father, I pray that you'd put a new burden on our hearts. That as we grow and and build in our own faith and our relationship with you, that the fruit would be then spread out to those around us. Father, let your name be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.